invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. It's been several weeks since we have been together in the Gospel of John. So it may not just open up naturally to that place, but we're going to pick up exactly where we left off in the middle of John chapter 9, the story of the man born blind and healed by our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the bulk of this chapter this morning, starting at verse 13 and going down through the end of the chapter to verse 41. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to make your word plain to us. That as we study your word, we would see and know the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would find hope in seeing him. And that we would be blessed. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Seeing is very important. We understand the challenges of the blind. It's difficult to live when you can't see. I still remember the day when I was a very young boy, probably second or third grade, when I was sitting in a classroom, and much to my teacher's annoyance, I would constantly get up out of my chair and walk right up to the blackboard, Yes, those were the days of blackboard and chalk when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yes. So we'd go up to the blackboard so that I could read what was written on it because I couldn't see. And thankfully, my teacher informed my parents about this, and I went and was, had my eyes examined and got corrective lenses that I have worn the rest of my life. If I don't have my glasses or my contacts on, I may as well be blind. I can't see anything. And that's very frustrating. Perhaps you've had a similar experience or you know someone who has been blind. But there is more than physical seeing. Because after all, we often wish that we had seen something beforehand. That before an action has happened, we would have seen it in advance. They say that hindsight is twenty-twenty, And then... There's another more important kind of sight. Seeing the reality of the most important things. We might call it spiritual sight. To see our purpose in life. To see the meaning of life. To see what God is doing in our life. This is a story about seeing. About a blind man who is given sight and sees the most important thing ever. 
And it's about people with sight who are blind to the Savior right in front of them. But this is not just about them. It's about us. Are we willing to see the reality of our lives and to see our need for the Savior? That is the challenge of our text this morning. And so in our text this morning, I would like us to see three things, three events. First, we see an interrogation. How the Pharisees interrogate both the man and his parents. And then secondly, we see an accusation. That they move from interrogation to accusation. And they have accusations against our Lord Jesus Christ and against the man himself. And then finally, we see a determination. A determination that our Lord makes about the blind Pharisees and about the man who now sees. An interrogation, an accusation, and a determination. Well, let's start by beginning to look at the context of chapter 9 here. You will remember that it has been more than a month since we have been together in John chapter 9. You will recall that Jesus passed by a blind man, blind from birth. This man had never seen in his entire life. And his disciples asked him who was to blame for this state of affairs. Was it him or his parents who had sinned? And Jesus responded, neither. But the man was blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus put, he made mud. And he put it on the man's eyes, and he told him to go and wash in the pool, and he was healed. And his neighbors were rightly shocked when they saw this. The man recounts this story to them in verse 11. He says, it was a man called Jesus who did this. But he didn't know where Jesus was or where he went. Now notice that at this point, the man's understanding here is small. It's just like he's beginning to see. So his neighbors bring him to the Pharisees in verse 13. And the Pharisees are going to question him. But John is actually giving us a picture of the Pharisees more than a picture of this man. And he starts in verse 14 by reminding us that the healing was done on the Sabbath. Now, we might ask, why is this detail important? If someone came to you and said, my cancer is healed. I can use my arm again. I can see again. You wouldn't say to them, well, was it Tuesday? Or, or, or did it happen on a Thursday? T tell me when it happened. You would want to know more about what had happened. But John gives us this detail because that was the most important thing to the Pharisees. Instead of being awed, instead of being encouraged, instead of being amazed, they are critical. And they start an interrogation of this man. Now, could you imagine if that happened here? If a blind person could see, or a lame person could suddenly walk, or a cancer patient was cured, what would your reaction be? Would you be amazed? Would you give glory to God? Well, the man explains 
again what happened to him in verse 15. And in this story, we are going to be given more and more of a picture of who this person is. Because in verse 15, he gives a shorter explanation. Perhaps he's tired of being questioned about this. Or maybe he senses the attitude of the Pharisees. So instead of giving details, as he does in verse 11, instead of giving Jesus' name and the name of the pool and where he went and how he washed, it's very abbreviated. He says, mud on my eyes, washed, I can see. It's actually even briefer in the Greek. It's as if he's like, yeah, okay, one more time. He wants to get this done. Now, I want you to note the very first reaction that the Pharisees have to his story in verse 16. They don't ask any question about what it's like to see. How do you feel about seeing? What was it like to be blind? What do your parents think? What do your friends think? No, the very first thing they say is, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. It's the very first thing on their mind. Now, why would they say that? Well, you may remember, we've looked at this before, that they had all sorts of rules and regulations about what was work on the Sabbath. They actually had come up with 39 written categories of what was work. I think one of the most ridiculous was that you could not carry a handkerchief from downstairs to upstairs because that was bearing a burden. But there's three more here for you. First, they would have said that when Jesus spat and made the, the, the mud to put on the man's eye, that that was work because you can't make clay on the Sabbath. That's manual labor. You may as well be putting in a full day at the construction site. That's work. And then second, they said that healing of any sort from a doctor or anyone else was forbidden except in a case of impending death. If healing could wait, it had to. Now imagine that for a moment. Imagine that you have the worst toothache you've ever had. You can't even think because you're in so much pain. And you go to your dentist and you say, could you treat this toothache? And he says, no, wait till tomorrow. You're not going to die. So it's okay that you're in all kinds of pain. Or perhaps you've broken a bone. Maybe it's even a compound fracture and it's coming out through the skin. And you say, I need help. Would you set the bone? And the doctor says, no. Now let's give it a day. We could do that tomorrow. You'll be fine. Could you just imagine that kind of thinking? But then also there was a specific injunction in the categories about applying saliva to a man's eyes. So here we have it. Jesus is 0 for 3. He has not managed to keep their rules and regulations for the Sabbath. But do you see what is going on here? First, the Pharisees are only focused on the when, not on the what. There's no compassion in them at all. How can they claim to be serving God when they don't have any compassion for this man and his family? They care more about their control than people. This is all about their rules and the ability 
to enforce them. Because we don't have the time for me to send you on a journey to look through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to find the Bible verses that say you can't make mud, or you can't heal, or you can't put saliva on eyes because they're not there. They're not in the scriptures. These are all man-made rules that are placed over top of the scriptures. This is important for us. Legalism is not caring greatly about God's law. It is not being careful to keep God's law. It's about using God's law for control. To try to make yourself holy by your own efforts. And if we're not careful, that can happen to us. Well, there's a second thing that's going on here. Jesus keeps doing these healings on the Sabbath. We might ask, why? Why doesn't he do them on other days? Why is he courting this kind of trouble and this controversy? Jesus certainly isn't against God's law. He always kept it. We know that from the scriptures. But Jesus is against human traditions that are against the intention of God's law. Jesus wants us to see that our efforts to make up rules that we can keep so that we can call ourselves righteous is the worst thing we can do. And so he deliberately points this out, the folly of the Pharisees. Well, John then tells us that there is a division amongst the Pharisees in verse 16. After they interrogate the man, some of them are sure that Jesus is a sinner because he broke the Sabbath. But others are not so sure because he's performed a miracle. And there is a controversy here because there is precedent for miracles or extraordinary things happening that aren't from God. You may remember when Moses cast his rod and it became a snake, Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. And that's why in the scriptures that God told Israel to test prophets, to test miracle workers by how they conform with the scriptures and God's word. Not to be put off by a display. But you see, the Pharisees here make no attempt at all to interact with the scriptures. Instead, they ask the man what he thinks, and he goes a little bit further in his understanding than in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, there's a man called Jesus who healed me. And now in verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. Now, I don't think he's saying he's the prophet. We've seen that before. He's not the prophet that Moses talked about. He's not coming to an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. But clearly he is sent from God and he does the works of God. Now, notice what happens next. The Jews, that is the Pharisees, had already concluded that Jesus was a sinner. This was, after all, the second time that he had broken the Sabbath according to their rules. But such a sinner could not do the work of God like giving sight to the blind. So they come up with a perfectly consistent conclusion. The man wasn't born blind. 
Obviously. Now, what makes this so ridiculous is that this man would have been known for being born blind. He would have begged in the same spot day after day. Everyone would have known he was blind, blind from birth. You may recall that at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus' disciples are just walking by, and even they know, they say, why is this man born blind? Everyone knows. But you see, the Pharisees have put together their own twisted form of logic. They are already decided that Jesus is a sinner, and a sinner can't do this, therefore it never happened. And so what they do is, they move the interrogation to his parents in verse 18. They call the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, it's not in the text, but in my sanctified imagination, I see the parents giving this answer with a huge eye roll. Yeah, I think we know our own son. Yeah, I think we know he's been born blind. We've been dealing with this for quite a while. It's been a burden on our family. We're pretty sure we know our own son. right? I mean, think of the question that's being asked there. But they're hesitant to say any more. Look at verse 21. They say, don't ask us how it happened to him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And so it appears that this man is likely a teenager. So I want especially you young people to pay attention here and to identify with the man. The man is not your father's age. He's probably 13, 14, maybe 15, maybe 16. Because the whole idea here is, he is a man, he's of age, but he doesn't look of age. The parents have to say, yes, he is of age. If he were 45 with a beard, they wouldn't have to say that. And so, this is a young man, a teenager. They say, go ask him. Now, John tells us why they did this. It's because they're afraid. They know that the Pharisees aren't asking honest questions. They know the Pharisees don't care about their son. The Pharisees have actually spread the word that anyone who acknowledges Jesus will be cast out of the synagogue. And that's not just being cast out of one church. That's being cast out of all the synagogues, out of the society that the Jews had. It's a fearful thing. It would be a bad fate. Are you sometimes hesitant to talk about Jesus openly and how he's changed your life? Because the world wants you to be afraid. It wants you to reject Jesus. But God is calling you to rejoice in the blessings he's given to you. He's calling upon you to be bold in the face of fear. But we then come to a second round. The Pharisees are not satisfied with the responses. So they call the man again and they begin to question him. But this is more of an accusation than an interrogation. The question that they give him is called, is a leading question. And if you've ever watched a courtroom drama, you know how this works. Lawyers are not allowed to lead the witness. You can't ask a question that has the answer in the question. So that the witness just says, yeah, that's it. You've got to ask a question so that the witness can answer in their own words. But they say, give glory to God. 
We know that this man is a sinner. Now, when they say give glory to God, you have to understand what they're doing. This is not a prayer meeting where they say give glory to God and the crowd whoops, hallelujah. No, that's not what's going on here. When they say give glory to God, they're saying, now tell the truth. Stop lying. This is the same phrase that Joshua says to Achan to get him to admit his sin. You may remember after the battle of Ai, after Achan has stolen some of what was to be dedicated to God and the Israelites keep getting defeated and they don't know why and they by lot cast by clan then by family and then eventually they come down to Achan and his family and Joshua says, now tell the truth. What did you do? Give glory to God. So what the Pharisees are doing here is they are insinuating that this man has lied. They want him to repent. And what they say is, this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And their language is dripping with hatred. Even the way they say, this man is Dis divisive. They might as well have said, this fellow, this fool, this guy. It's very dismissive. And they say, we are sure, we know that he's a sinner. Now, the irony here is obviously they don't know because they keep asking. If they knew, why would they ask the man and then ask his parents and then ask the man again? They don't know. But this is about control. They have confidence. And they won't be stopped. Now, you can think about it this way. Have you ever had an occasion, maybe it's when you were cooking and someone was helping you. Or you were doing some repairs around the house and someone was helping you. Or you're putting together a piece of furniture. And the person who's helping you, you try to... Give them advice on what to do. Hand them the instructions. And they say, no, 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 I know this. I don't need those instru instruction booklets. I, I can do this. You don't need to tell me what. I've got this handled. And then what happens is, not only do they fail, but they fail spectacularly. Like, they don't just ruin the food. But as they're overcooking the food, it bubbles up and hits them in the face. I mean, it's spectacular failure. That's what's going on here with the Pharisees. They're so sure they know, but they don't know. They want the man to confirm their opinion about Jesus, that he is a sinner. Now stop and think about this for a minute. They want the man to throw Jesus under the bus. This man has received healing from Jesus. And they want him, to cast Jesus aside. What has Jesus done? Only the best thing ever in this man's life. But the Pharisees don't care because they're already convinced that Jesus is a sinner. They're already convinced of that because he does not submit to their authority and their control. And they are invested in their belief. They can't see anything different. It takes a lot to have your eyes opened. You know, we often think if someone doesn't believe, we just need to be more persuasive. We might even think 
in a dream. Well, if they just had Jesus here, they would believe. Or if they just saw a miracle, a wonderful miracle, then they would believe. But the Pharisees have Jesus right there. They've seen this miracle that has never happened before. And all they can think about is their detailed rules about the Sabbath that aren't even in the Bible. This is what unbelief looks like. The Bible shows us that it is not a matter of people needing to be persuaded. When hearts are hard, they look for every excuse not to believe. Well, the man does not exactly respond well to being grilled again. The Pharisees have made accusations about Jesus that he's a sinner. And now, for what is at least the third time, he has told the story. And admittedly, he doesn't know much about Jesus. But he does contradict the Pharisees in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they continue to act as if he's a liar. They say, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And then he answers them, and I have to admit, I think this is perhaps one of the best answers to a question in all of the Bible. The only portion of the Bible that I think that is, is more humorous is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's on that level. Because he answers them, I've told you already. And you wouldn't listen. It's as if he's saying his third time is supposed to be the charm. I've already told you this. Why do you want to hear it again? Why do you keep asking me? And here is the money line. Do you also want to be his disciples? Is that what you're after? You want to follow Jesus? You want to call him the Christ? You want to serve him? Is that why you keep asking me? So I'll help you? I'll introduce you to him? Is that what you want? What a response. Now, I am not advocating for sarcasm. But this is some of the best sarcasm you will ever hear in your life. Now, young people, do not go home and be sarcastic to your parents and say, if the blind man can do it, I can do it. That's not what the pastor said. If you happen to come across this week some Pharisees who attack Jesus and ask you too many questions, your pastor gives you permission to be sarcastic with them. But not with your parents. You see, if anyone deserves this sarcasm, it's the Pharisees. And now they're beyond even an accusation. Can you imagine what their faces look like after he delivers that line? John tells us what's in their heart. He says, they reviled him. That means they hated him. That means they wanted to verbally abuse him. And they say, you are his disciples. But we are disciples of Moses. If you were smart, you'd be a disciple of Moses. But you're just a young punk. You don't know anything. You probably haven't memorized any of the prophets. You don't know anything about Moses. Why should we listen to you? 
is their attitude. We know, there it is again, we know, we are sure that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now there's, some, there's something hidden here in this verse that's also humorous. They say, we don't know where he comes from. And you may recall that back in chapter 7, verse 27, they're sure Jesus isn't the Messiah because they know where he comes from. Do you remember that? They said, where this, we know where this man comes from, Jesus, but when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they're contradicting themselves. Do you see that? They're so angry, they can't keep themselves straight. Their argument is all upside down and topsy-turvy. And a man sees this and he points out their hypocrisy. And he says, why this is an amazing thing. You don't even know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. You don't know where he's from and yet he performed the greatest miracle in our lifetime. What about that? That's something. They'd forgotten what the Bible says. They'd forgotten what the Bible says about the age of the Messiah because the Bible speaks about a main sign of the age of the Christ, of the Messiah being that the blind have their eyes open. If they had opened their Bibles to Isaiah 29, they would have read, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And they could have gone to Isaiah 35. That when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Or they could have gone to Isaiah 42. That the Messiah would come to open the eyes that are blind. Over and over again, the Bible speaks about exactly this. If they knew their Bibles, if they'd studied their Bibles as well as their 39 categories of rules, they would have spotted this. And they would have repented. But in their frustration and hatred, they abuse the man, accuse him, and cast him out. That brings us to the last thing. We've seen the Pharisees' interrogation of the man and his parents. We've seen their accusations about Jesus and the man. Now John brings us to the result of all of this. The, the so what. What difference does all this make? We'll come back to the man in a moment. But let's start with the Pharisees. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now this may be confusing, because you may recall back in chapter 3, John tells us that Jesus came to save, but not to condemn. And now Jesus is saying, I've come for judgment. And yes, his mission was not one of condemnation of the world. His mission was to save sinners. But saving sinners means that judgment is coming. That those who are not saved will experience the judgment. And those who are saved will escape the judgment. Jesus came so that the blind could have hope. That people like this blind man could have hope. Like the woman at the well. Like his disciples. And like you. And me. 
But those who think they can see, they're blind. It's their self-confidence that blinds them to their need for a Savior. And if they don't need Jesus, then they don't need to come to Him. This is the story of much of our world today. They have no use for Jesus. They want Him as far away from them as possible. And the Pharisees are an example of this. Now, they are listening in on Jesus' conversation. Isn't it interesting that they're always lurking around the corner? It's almost as if you picture this. Jesus is speaking with the man. And the Pharisees jut their head out around the corner going, Are you talking about us? Stop talking about us. Don't criticize us. You see, they're always trying to catch Jesus in a trap. They're self-centered. And Jesus' determination is that their guilt remains. It remains because they think they can see. And therefore they have no need for a Savior. So they will not come to Jesus. And that's all that really matters. If you will not come to Jesus, your guilt remains. If you think you have no need for Jesus, that you are smart enough, that you are wealthy enough, that you have enough friends, then you cannot be free from your sin. The only way to be free from the guilt and penalty of sin is to come to Jesus. And that means not trusting yourself. It means coming empty-handed to Jesus. And we see an example of that in the man. Notice what happens after the man is cast out. Jesus heard of it and he went and found the man. This is yet another example of Jesus seeking the lost. Over and over again in John, we don't find people seeking Jesus. We find Jesus seeking people. And the question Jesus asks is important. Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now remember, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it speaks of his deity. We saw that last Lord's Day evening from Daniel 7. That it speaks of his deity. And this question that Jesus asks is the most important question because it deals with the most important thing in life and in death. Your relationship with Jesus. And the man responds, not knowing everything, but enough to know what he needs. In verse 36 he says, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus gives, again, one of the most direct answers in all of the Gospels. It's similar to how he spoke to the woman at the well. He says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. You're looking at him. I am the Son of Man. And the man's response is the perfect response. He says, I believe. And he worships Jesus. Is that your response to the Savior? Do you believe that He's your only hope? The one who will save you from sin, guilt, and shame. The one who can restore you. The world may interrogate you and accuse you. It certainly accuses Jesus. But the world cannot take Jesus from you. When you put your trust in Him you will never be cast out. Open our eyes, Lord, that we 
may see Jesus. Let's pray.